I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. And we would like to reiterate on this particular episode, I feel like I say that with every episode, but when it comes down to history... Sometimes we may not have all of the facts correct. Right. And also when we talk about, you know, because, you know, we are talking about things to do with uh, Pride Month. These are not things that are part of our own reality. So if we get things wrong, it's also because of that. Yes. But we did try to do it justice. I know that both of of us spent a lot of time doing research for this episode. So we did the best that we could. And... If there is anything that you would like to add or let us know, or if we screw anything up, please feel free to uh, send us an email. Let us know. And be nice. Please. Just always got to remind you. I loved researching for this episode. Me too. I'm so excited. So, you guys, we're going to talk about Stonewall today. Yes, we are. And I got a lot of my information from a documentary called uh, Stonewall Uprising. Okay. And I loved that... One of the people who was there, the reason why it's called Stonewall Uprising is because that's how he likes to refer to it. To yeah. Refer to it. He refers to it as an uprising rather than a riot, which I right. kind of liked because when you say riot, sometimes it has these like negative connotations attached to it. Yeah. And really calling it an uprising, I think, is far more fitting because it really demonstrates that it's people who were truly at the end of their rope. Yeah. And everything kind of came to, like, a boiling point. Yeah. I got some great information at uh, www.them.us. 
I, you know, you know me and Wikipedia. Got some great shit off Wikipedia. <laughs> and, you know, a few things from New York Post and things like that. There was some stuff that I read that was, like, frustrating from, like, people on the outside that were talking about that mm-hmm. day. Or I was just like, I can't read this article. Like, you should definitely watch... Stonewall Uprising Uprising because it's mostly people who were present. Yeah. Which is really cool. Um, I also got a lot of my information. I feel like I should point this out as well. I got a lot of my information from the Stuff You Should Know episode. Yes, me too. And so good. The the website too. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's a really great um, article on there. Yes. As well. It's like nine pages that you can go through. Is that the one that you saw? I did see that one. I took notes from that one. I also listened to the podcast episode. Yeah. So there's super great stuff out there. Yeah. Um, if you're interested in learning more about Stonewall or stuff that we don't cover because there's no way we're going to get through everything in an hour, go ahead and get out there and watch Stonewall Uprising, watch the death and life of Marsha P. Johnson. Yeah, don't call her Martha Keegan. <laughs> no, that I wasn't going to. <laughs> so mad at myself. And I edited it out, but at one point I said, Mar- I said Martha P. Or no, Marsha P. Washington. Like... Dude, I almost say Martha P. Washington every single time, and I think it's because of Mar- it's because of Martha that? Washington. That was uh, George Washington's wife. I know, but like my Chris's mom is Marsha. You think that Marsha would just be so easy for me to like come to? But I every there is time, something about her name that's almost like a tongue twister. It truly time is. I I heard myself say it during editing. I just face palmed harder and harder and harder and I was just like you know what fuck this I'm so sorry I heard you say it when we were recording but you you truly said it with so much confidence I was like am I wrong like I was questioning myself I was like maybe I'm wrong that was the first thing my mom said she goes how did Keegan not like well because I was like I was like I think she's wrong but I I didn't want to be that person that was like "Uh, excuse me and then me be wrong. You know what I mean? Right, so I was like, I'm going right. to let her go. <laughs> no, I thought that was funny. My mom was like, I just kept waiting for Keegan to jump in and be like, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. so um, I think before we talk about Stonewall, it's really, really important to kind of set the scene for what life was like yes. for um, people in the LGBTQ community at this time, particularly in the 50s and 60s. Of course, it wasn't called the LGBTQ community at this time. Mm-hmm. Um it's kind of an interesting thing because it kind of ramped up in homophobia in the 1950s and 60s when, before that, it was kind of like a don't ask, don't tell kind of policy in the United States. People weren't really outwardly super, super homophobic in the way that they became in the 50s and 60s. Well, and I think that the Red Scare and communism had a lot to do with that. Yes, it did. McCarthy. Yep, McCarthyism. Did you know that Joe McCarthy was rumored to be gay himself. Really? Yeah, and he kind of I mean, led doesn't this. It, doesn't that like make sense? It though? does, but he, yeah, he was said to be homosexual himself, and he's the one who really led this anti-gay crusade. Yeah. In the 1950s, and really worked to pass all of these laws. Right. So, in the 1950s, there were a few things going on. First of all, before 1973, in the DSM, as it was just called at that time. Right homosexuals were a part of the, like, psychiatric list, basically, of mental illnesses. They were considered sexual uh, psychopaths, which I thought was was interesting. It was a form of um, psychopathy. They were, like, perverts and criminals. And there was, like, anti-sodomy laws, and there, which would criminalize, like, 
private sexual acts, so it would have to be, like, someone would have to find out, I guess. Yeah, it's really interesting. It was every state in the United States had an anti-gay law or something that um, could be seen as an anti-gay law. So there were sodomy laws in some states, every state except for Illinois, which is crazy. But there were anti-sodomy laws in some states. There were laws against dancing with people of the the same gender. And then also there was that you had to wear three items of your gender's attire. Right, and if you weren't, then they would get a female police officer to, like, especially if it was male to female transgender, to essentially grope you or ask you to remove your clothing to see your genitalia, to determine whether you were a male or a female. It's so disgusting. Yeah. I was reading a little bit about the 1950s witch hunt, the Lavender Scare, which yes. reminds me of the Lavender Menace that we've talked yeah, about. Yeah, same thing, pretty much. And uh, it was mass firings of homosexual people from the U.S. state government. There was a guy named Frank Carnany? Carn- I can't read my own notes, guys. I'm sorry. But he was an influential member of the gay rights movement who was fired because of his sexual orientation in 1957. He was an astronomer working for the U.S. Army Map Service, and he was not allowed to find any other job in the federal government again. Uh, and he devoted his life after that to the gay rights movement. Yeah, I mean, and I, I really want to touch on... So we mentioned that in the DSM, being a homosexual or being transgendered was considered to be a mental illness. It was considered a form of psychopathy. And the things that they could do to you, mm-hmm. and this is, I, I do want to give a trigger warning here because this is horrifying and sad. And when I was watching this documentary, it really it made me want to cry because they could admit you to a psychiatric hospital and And everything that entailed yeah and at first they would try and like talk you out of being gay if that didn't work they would start doing aversion therapy where they would essentially strap you to a chair Mm -hmm. and make you watch um images of gay porn and then they would shock you did you watch the season of asylum of American Horror yes. Story because they do that to Sarah Paulson's character yes. a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, and those things really did happen. Yeah. And there was, you could even be subjected to sterilization or in some cases castration or a lobotomization. And there was a hospital here in California called um, a Tescadero Hospital and they performed medical experiments that included administering a drug that simulated the experience of drowning. Oh. So it was, yeah, it was basically like waterboarding pretty much but like without, with, the water. without the water so it would it would react everything in your body that that would simulate the feeling of drowning That's so um, wrong it's truly truly horrific and sad and this is the reality that people yeah. were living in at this time prior to Stonewall yeah and to get a little bit into Stonewall Um, The FBI had a list of known homosexuals and their favorite establishments and friends. The U.S. Post Office kept track of the addresses where material pertaining homosexuality was mailed. And because there was such a strict law against not only being gay, but, you know, also not, like, meeting places and Mm -hmm. going to bars and things like that, that the mafia would run these establishments where gay people could meet, and that was what Stonewall was. It was run by the Mafia. Right. So the Mafia kind of saw an opportunity. They saw an opening where they were like, 
we have this entire market that is not being tapped into. So we're going to buy... It wasn't like they cared. No. Oh, God. (laughs) They they were not benevolent at all. I mean, even to the point of they would blackmail members of the um, LGBTQ community. They would sometimes send their men in to kind of, like, be undercover and flirt with guys who obviously had families or jobs that they didn't want to lose, and then they would blackmail those men. They did really awful things, but they did have these establishments that were really the only places where uh, gay people or members of the LGBTQ community could come together and be open about their sexuality. Yeah. So they also got away with this for so long because they would pay off cops. So the people who owned, the mafia that owned the Stonewall, they had a deal with the 6th Precinct in New York. So they still got rioted, but they would get rioted on weeknights. They would wear... They, their, I've heard, too, that they would get, like, warnings. They'd get warned. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So they kind of and knew when happen. they were coming. And then, like, they said, you know, the, they'd be dancing and the lights would come up and they'd be like, okay, like, you know, that's the sign. Stop touching. Stop dancing. Like, you know. Right. And they would they would here. do things like intimidate you, like take your name or whatever, look at your ID um, or whatever. But mainly it was intimidation and it wasn't a ton of hassling because they were really being paid off or getting kickbacks. Yeah, they were just kind of trying to torture them in a way. Well, I mean, and to try and, like, kind of demonstrate that we're here, we're doing our job without without really having to do their job. Yeah. So, if we want to start kind of getting into the start of Stonewall... Let's do it. Okay, so, at 1 a.m. on June 28th in 1969, um, there was a deputy inspector named Seymour Pine. He was not of the 6th Precinct. He was part of Manhattan's first division of public morals. Mm. Mm-hmm. And he led a raid uh, with some undercover cops. So the cops that summer had been shutting down all of these these gay bars. So yeah. one by one, they were just being knocked out, and like p- where people could meet was really limited at this time. So there were, yeah. the Stonewall was totally packed full of people. So he came in with the intention, Pine came in with the intention of shutting down not only a gay bar, but also a mafia-run bar. So yeah. all the gay people there are just, they, you know, obviously thinking, like, they're coming in and shutting down these bars because of us. Pine, who is in this documentary, and I don't know how much truth there is to this, will, yeah, he will may, say... he may be covering his ass. Totally. Him, but. but he'll say, like, well, we were shutting them down because they were run by the mafia. I'm sure it was both. I'm sure it was both, but, like, yeah. you know... I mean, and he could be a changed man, too. You know what I mean? He may have, you know, realized the error of his ways. I don't know. Right. I mean, and it was <sighs> prob- I mean, at the time, I'm sure he could have rationalized it to himself that it was all to do with the mafia, because right. he would have had to have shut those down. It was his yeah. job to do that, but... What they ended up doing was, like, a normal... They went in with, like, undercover, like, officers. It was like, you know, this is a raid. It kind of all started out like a normal raid. Yeah. But as people were leaving and they were checking their IDs, which is definitely something you didn't want to happen. Yeah. Because you didn't want these people knowing that you were gay. They were exiting the bar kind of, like, one by one, showing their IDs. And then people were standing outside of the bar kind of, like, waiting for their friends to come out. Yeah. So... A crowd started forming in the street, and then people who lived in the village, which was a lot of other, you know, members of the gay community and transgender people and, like, young street kids started joining the crowd. And so at this point, 
the cops are kind of sandwiched because there's a crowd outside on the street and there's a crowd inside in the bar. And then it's like, <laughs> it happens. There's, and we will get into controversy a little bit about how exactly it started. Um, but we do know that it was not started by a gay white male. <laughs> no, it was not. And in fact, okay, so there's a lot of discrepancy over how it started and who was the first. A lot of people have attributed Marsha P. Johnson as being the first, but she herself said that she was not. Right. She and Sylvia Rivera, who I t- talked about last week, have both said honest, like openly, no, we we were going to get there later. Like, we were on our way there. We were not, right. you know, we joined in when there was hundreds of people there already. Right. So Marsha said that she got there at 2 a.m. and the riot had already started at 1 a.m. And Sylvia actually was quoted as saying, I have been given credit for throwing the first Molotov mm-hmm. cocktail by many historians, but I always like to correct it. I threw the second one. I did not throw the first one. Yeah, and I love that because it's like, it probably wasn't exactly the second, but, in her, she, but she's like, no, no, no. Like, I was there and I was She's a huge like, part of it. Yeah. But I didn't do the first one. I and want I you to know that I threw something. Yeah, I think that's super cool. Some say that this, I think it's Storme. Storme? Yeah, it looks like Storme because of the accent. Yeah. I've seen that De, as well. De Lavery, mm-hmm. who was a black, biracial, butch, lesbian, and drag king, had punched a cop and yelled, Why don't you guys do something? So that's one yes. of the stories. And And she, again, it's so funny, like, everyone kind of does not want to take credit, because she said that she, she, it wasn't her, but by all accounts, I think it actually was her, because she said, the cop hit me, and I hit him back, the cops got what they gave, and then everyone kind of started. And that is from a book by Charles Kaiser, which is called The Gay Metropolis, The Landmark History of Gay Life in America, and also, she had been asked by reporters, like, why, like, why won't you give us an answer? And she goes, because it was never anybody's business. But I think that's kind of cool because it was like to take on the responsibility of such a huge thing that started this movement that is still being fought today. Like, that's a lot of responsibility that, you know, is very humble of her to, mm-hmm. to just be like, I can't take responsibility because, you know, I read an article about where it's not important about who threw the first I punch agree. or who threw the first brick. It's the fact that all of these things came together and this amazing moment happened, you know? Yeah, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who started it. And you know what? I, I think all of those things can be true. I think you can be in the midst of something and maybe truly don't you don't believe that you started it because you don't really know because in there the could moment have been someone else back there you know also throwing punches like yeah. you don't know who did what and nothing is to say that Marsha didn't stand on that like bar table and throw that shot glass like she probably did do that yeah you know but I love that Sylvia there's a quote of her in the death and life of Martha P. John Marsha damn Marsha P. Johnson <laughs> where she's like I was spaced out on black beauties and scotch and I'm like yes girl <laughs> and she's like I don't know she's like the lights just came on and um this is, these are some quotes that are from that movie. So Marcia says, When I got downtown, the place was already on fire. Sylvia and them were over in the park having a cocktail, and we were in the streets turning on over cars, and oh my dear, blocking traffic and screaming and she's hollering amazing. and everything. And this is like, she's being interviewed. So you can actually see and hear her giving this interview. Sylvia says, I mean, there was a lot of bloodshed that night, and the movement started the next day. 
A reporter asked Marsha, he goes, why are you here today? Marsha said, darling, I want my gay rights now. I think it's about time my gay brothers and sisters got their rights, and especially the women. (laughs) And then the reporter goes, how will this affect your job? Marsha goes, honey, I don't have a job. I'm on welfare. I have no intentions of getting a job as long as this country discriminates against homosexuals. And um, I just think that's so cool of both of them the way like they it's like they all kind of had this understanding of how they were going to talk about it and like how it's not about the individual it's about the whole movement as a whole and I think that's really cool where they're both just saying like you know you know how like reporters will interview someone and they're like oh my gosh I can't believe it it's like all about them uh-huh. over them they're like well we just want our gay rights now right I mean it's everything about when researching Stonewall it's truly that everything about what happened there came out of them being so completely done with being discriminated against. Yes. Like, they were being so oppressed in this country. And they were like, you can't take one of these last places that we can actually be ourselves. Well, and it was just, like, a boiling point. I think all of the stars kind of aligned in just the perfect way that this was not planned. It wasn't what they wanted to do. They were just trying to, like, go out and have a good time. And it was finally just, like, that's the last straw. Like, we can't do this anymore. We're being harassed every day. We fear for our lives and our jobs and our families every single day. And and enough is enough. Enough and, is enough. And so, um, at this point in the night, people start throwing pennies at the police. It started with pennies, and then the pennies turned to bricks, and then they started like lighting stuff on fire. Yeah, and Molotov cocktails yeah, all over the place. And <laughs> at this point, um, Seymour Pine is like, "We need to call for backup." Like, <laughs> no shit, well, Seymour. It's because they didn't feel threatened because it was a crowd of gay men and trans and trans women yeah, and so lesbians. Yeah, so in their mind, they're like, oh, what yeah, are they going to do? It was women and, and gay men. So they were like, how dangerous can they be? Like, yeah. they, were just, they, they weren't concerned. And then stuff started getting real and shit started hitting the fan and they were like, okay, we need backup. So who did they call for backup but the 6th Precinct? Mm-hmm. And the 6th Precinct was like, we're not showing up because, like, how dare you raid our... You're on our turf. You're raiding our shit. And they were, like, mad about it. So yeah. they, they were, like, turning off their radios. And they uh, they also were like, how much backup could you need? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah. a bunch of gay men and, and you know, trans women and lesbian women. Hell hath no fury like a drag queen scorn. Exactly. People. Exactly. Oh, so, so at this point, Seymour is like... Shit, like we don't have backup. This crowd is getting insane. We need to go barricade ourselves inside the stone wall. <laughs> so they go back into the stone wall and oh barricade themselves in. And then at this point, like someone outside had like ripped out a parking meter meter and they broke the door down. Hell yeah. <laughs> to get to They're the like, cops. you motherfuckers, nope. <laughs> and then like shit started getting real. Like people started showing up. I think they said there were like six hundred to a thousand oh, people. It was crazy. Well, because this is the thing. This whole Things going down, and it starts drawing the hippies, the civil rights protesters, tourists, the street kids. Like, it's not just about the gay and trans right. community yeah. and queer community. Suddenly, everybody's like in on this, and like everyone's up in arms. So, the numbers are just like growing and growing and growing. Yeah, I mean, that first night. 
kind of like after it went on into the morning they basically chased the cops around because the 6th precinct eventually did have to show up yeah and so they chased the cop to, cops around for a while and at that point that month that night kind of like died down come morning that that riot kind of died down come morning but then day two yep. was like when all the real shit went down yep because day two, they became way more organized. They started getting speakers it involved. It became political. It wasn't just about being angry. Like, it was, you know, they had pamphlets. People were chanting gay power. I think it was day two or three, the Black Panthers showed up. Yes, thank you. Um, So it was kind of like everyone who was like, we are so sick and tired of this abuse of power um, from the police in particular. Yeah. But, like, you know, in general, yeah. like, suppressing these minority groups, not just gay minorities, but black minorities, women, because this was all at a time of civil unrest when we're, we're doing the civil rights movement, we're doing uh, the second wave, we're doing anti-war protests at yeah. this time. So it was just really all the stars kind of aligned yeah, for, for this, this to, to happen. happen. And it needed to happen, and it, it was way overdue. And how awesome it is to, like, to show that first night of, like, allyship. You yeah, know what I mean, it was like everybody was finally seeing what was actually going on because you had to be so secretive about it. You know what I mean? And, and they had their allies before, I'm sure, their friends and people who they felt connected to. But it was, but it was finally like on a broader spectrum. Yeah, it, and people were like, "Holy was, shit, this is not fair." When I was listening to, um, when I was listening to the stuff you should know podcast episode about it, they were talking about. Um, they used the words, and it is a pun, and I'm sorry, but they were like, "It was like the." world's biggest coming out party mm -hmm. because it was like these people had to be hidden in the shadows for so long and it was really really dangerous for them to come out and even say the words i'm gay in public like they could have been lobotomized yeah. you know just or lost their jobs or their families or anything just for saying that they were gay in public so this was such a huge huge massive deal yeah. at this time, um, and their allies were able to kind of come out and, and be there and for them. And have their backs, mm -hmm. and be like, yeah. you can, you know, feel safe saying this, because we're going to be here to fight with you. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. And then Sunday, this is what I was thinking of, protesters mostly met in a nearby park and held hands and kissed each other and danced. Aww. Like, that's such a peaceful, that's such a 1969 way of protesting, like, it's such an it's age beautiful. of Aquarius, like... We're just going to peacefully be, like, holding hands and kissing and dancing just it's to also, piss you the fuck off. It's also so radical. Because so it's like, radical. It's like, if you're well, peaceful pissing... peaceful protest can be just as radical as, like, but, throwing shit. Yeah, but this is not just a peaceful protest in that, like, we've participated in peaceful protests, right? Because yeah. it's just, like, it was also illegal. Very. So it was like, you... I mean, they were risking everything just by holding hands in public. You know, it's yeah. it's it's so crazy to think about, and and it feels like we've come a long way, but then in a lot of ways we we haven't. No. But when you think about like that, you couldn't even hold hands, especially with us like living in California, where it's not that that unusual at all to yeah. see a same-sex couple walking down the street holding hands. It's just so crazy to think that in New York City, yeah. you could be arrested for that or jailed for that is yeah. is crazy and sad. Yeah. yeah, very. And this went on for six nights. I don't really know much about the rest of the nights. Do you know what happened the rest of those nights? Um, I don't know particulars, but I do know. So day one and two, the 
crowd, the protesters kind of um, overpowered the cops. There mm-hmm. were there were more protesters than police mm-hmm. for the first two days. And um, day two, the cops did ramp up their violence, their brutality on the second day. Because they knew what they were getting into, too. And they were... They were outnumbered, and they were kind of like, "Okay, we're not gonna we're not gonna be hitting these people in the legs anymore with our batons. We're gonna hit them in the head." So a lot of people on day two were injured. They started getting injuries, um, head injuries, because the cops were no longer, you know, kind of going for arms and legs or whatever they were hitting them in the head on purpose. Yeah. Um, and then day three is when uh, cops started to outnumber the protesters at that yeah. point because they'd had enough backup coming in. Right. And then things kind of slowly, like, waned and died down up until the sixth day. Yep. Um, A month later, a commemorative march took place in New York, and similar marches were held in a bunch of different major cities in the United States, where they walked from Christopher Street to Central Park. Or was it Central Park to Christopher Street? I don't remember. One of the two. But that's that's kind of the... uh, that's what they do for gay pride in New York. They mm-hmm. still walk that same route, which I think is so cool. And on the anniversary of the riots, thousands of people marched in Christopher Park to Central Park. That's what it says. I figured it out. <laughs> which was the first pride parade. And um, shortly after that as well, within the next few months, Gay Activist Alliance and Gay Liberation Front organized. Um, something that was crazy for me is that a lot of mainstream newspapers almost ignored these riots. Yeah. Like, it was just very, like, small, intimate papers. It's so like the Newsies that I just saw this weekend, (laughs) where it's, like, the little ragtag group of reporters, like, I'll write about you. Well, Stonewall was slightly different in that it did get some national attention, because there was... There had been other gay riots, and, and there had been other, like, transgender riots and exactly. quote-unquote drag queen riots right. that well, got vi- almost no attention at exactly. all. Exactly. So... I, and what you lead me into my next bullet point, Megan. <laughs> Why was Stonewall different? Why was it noteworthy? It was larger in scale and lasted much longer than the other incidents. The Pride Munch... The Pride Munch? <laughs> <laughs> the Pride March began so that it could be commemorated. Like, they, they purposefully did this march because they were like, we need something that could be commemorated annually. Right. They were thinking very much about the future. Well, I mean, and a thing that kind of made them know that they they could commemorate it annually is because on that, like, several months after the... When they first did their first march or whatever, several months after the initial riots, they didn't know how many people were going to show up. These were days, like, before the internet where they were like, okay, just, like, word of mouth kind of, we'll get it out there that we're going to do this walk. Yeah. And they thought it was going to be, like, ten people. They really didn't think a lot of people were going to come out. And by the end of it... And people were joining all the while, right? And they were all kind of moving together. Well, and, they... and that's what's cool is that there were those, like, quiet organizations before. There was the the Lavender... Lavender Scare. There were those people that were, like, the Lavender Menace from the Lavender Scare. And then there was the... I'm going to say this wrong. Mattachine Society? Right. From what I read, that they also communicated amongst themselves and with each other so that there was already some secret kind of organizations going on that were then able to, like, come out and support the people that were newly... Yeah, the Medicine... I don't know if I'm saying that right either, but that society was comprised... And I think that was kind of, like, later 50s, early 60s. Yeah. And that one was comprised mostly of white male gay men. Yeah. And, um... 
it received actually what they were doing was incredibly brave for the time that they were doing it but they did receive quite a lot of um backlash yeah because they their idea of how to like deal with this was we are going to be as clean cut and nice and clean as possible. We're going to because they, they wanted were, to assimilate. They, they, they were to blend basically in with yeah. They were basically the leave it to beavers of the gay community, right. and well, they, they really didn't. To... They didn't stand up for. It was kind of like you know first wave feminists. They didn't really stand up for the rights of people of color in the yeah. LGBTQ community or trans people. Um, yeah. But what they did was incredibly brave and shouldn't was, be overlooked. But their whole like thing was that they tried to prove that gay people could be assimilated into society which yeah. is like such a kind of problematic way of putting it because obviously. I, I understand where their hearts were at because they were basically saying like you're saying that we, you're demonizing us and saying that we are perverts and you know essentially saying that we're pedophiles and all right. this other stuff. But we are just like you. We're just like you yeah. and that's what they were trying to, to the point they were trying to put across and they did do things that I thought were incredibly brave and risky like yeah. you can watch videos of them in their suits, you know, looking very clean cut and super polite and holding signs that say that they are gay. Yeah. You know, in the early 60s right. and stuff and like you, that. And you have to give them credit where credit is due. Of and course. also for the times, of this course. was new. They were just trying to figure things out for themselves because they probably didn't have a big understanding about different parts of the LGBTQ plus community. Absolutely. Because now, right now, we don't even have a full understanding of that stuff. You know what I mean? So for them, they can understand their own realities as gay white men. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, have you seen the trailer for the 2000, I think, 15 movie Stonewall? I have. That movie's a hot mess as far as I've heard. I'm so pissed. So when I saw that trailer for the first time, I didn't know much of anything about Stonewall. I knew very, very, very little. So when I saw the trailer, I was like... I remember it was that trailer, and it was something else that was very, like, feminist, very progressive. And I was like, yes! Like, these are summer movies that I am going to see. I'm glad these stories are being told. I'm so psyched. And then I get home, and I'm, like, looking up stuff about it, and I'm like, oh, fuck. Yeah. This isn't good. Yeah, I know, and, and they had so, such an opportunity. They did. Well, they've had a couple. They did another... They did a movie, like, in the 80s or 90s or something mm-hmm. like that as well, and... That one wasn't very well received. It's like, why why not just be historically accurate, especially if you're going to be billing something as based on a true story? It doesn't I don't, make any sense I, I don't me. get it either because, to me, it is... It it's is, a more boring story, too. No offense. Yeah. Well, I mean, to me, it's like, it's, it's already such an incredibly inspiring story without having I mean, to manipulate any of the facts. Right? So why and, would and you? And it seems very Madagene society mm-hmm. to be like, oh, we're gonna bring in these, like, white gay boys and have them be seen as the face It's of, so weird, isn't it? It's like... It's so weird. It's and like it's like, they, who was making this movie? Like, they somehow who, think it's going to be more palatable to people, but it's like, look, man, if you're trying to appeal to that segment of the population, you're not gonna succeed anyway. They don't make because, that movie. Yeah. Because the movie is still gonna not be something at that side of 
people is going to want to see, period. So it's just yeah. like, you might as well just, I mean, and that's, I've heard a criticism of the way that Stonewall has been taught in general is the quote unquote pink washing is what they call Ooh, it. Ooh, I like um, that. They call it pink washing. It's this kind of erasure of people of color and the trans community, because as we talked about with Sylvia, or you talked about with Sylvia last week, even after all of this, where really trans people came out hard for Stonewall and really put a lot on the line. They're the names. Like, Sylvia and Marsha are the people that people remember. Right. I mean, and Storme is a biracial, like, butch lesbian. Yeah, and they were very similarly to the trans community. They weren't the bottom of the barrel. But they were ostracized. But they were very ostracized. Yeah, and it's kind of like, it's so crazy to me, and, you know, it's kind of like what we talked about when we were talking about the second wave, or the first wave of feminism, where it's like you guys should all be in this together, like fighting the same fight We're together. All in this <laughs> together. Yeah, it and doesn't, it doesn't make any it, sense. It doesn't because it, it's just like why are you dividing? Why are you further dividing yourselves within? Yeah, your, whenever like you're all you're all there because for the same rights. Because I feel like there's, there's this internal thing in us that be always better. wants to be better. Yeah, and that's why I feel like there's still so many issues when it comes to race, even within the community of other people of color. Yeah. Like, I feel like there's so much that, that, like, it's, there's levels and levels and levels that you could go down forever because I feel like people, it's easier for people to think of themselves as being better in some way. Yeah, of course. Instead of, you know, doing the harder thing. Yes. Yeah. Trying to realize that no one is better than the other, you know? I thought it was really, here's a fun fact before we kind of, like, move on to other things, but here's a fun fact that I forgot about that I just remembered. They, um, they were talking about how, the Stonewall riot that first night, or the Stonewall uprising that first night, was really a a gay riot. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were talking about how like trans women and gay men had formed a kick line during the riots. Yes, and, I just read that. Isn't too. that amazing? They were <laughs> kick lining at the police, which is just the best thing. And they were saying how like the next day when they went out and looked at the street in front of Stonewall, it was just like necklaces and sequins. Like <laughs> it just looked like Mardi Gras. Like isn't that amazing? I love it so much. Yeah, I love it too because they were throwing oh necklaces at the police. Fuck they were yeah, just like, anything you got. Mm-hmm, anything I love you got. it. If you have like a real heavy piece of costume jewelry, like. Yeah, those beads hurt, man. They hurt. Get them in the eyeball. Whip it around. Yeah, for real. You don't have a weapon on you. Like, use what you've got. Um, let's talk a little bit about Marsha. Let's talk about Marsha. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Um, so, Marsha P. Wow, almost out of Washington again. I know. It's my instinct, too. Marsha P. Johnson is, like, the mother of the gay rights movement because she really was just a mother to everybody. She actually met Sylvia, I didn't remember this, but when she was 12 years old, Sylvia was 12, and she refers to Marsha as her mom, you know? And so, you know, as Sylvia was a mother to so many, Marsha was her mom. Right, they passed it on, like, because they were taken in. They were street kids at one point, and they were taken in by a quote-unquote mother. And so a lot of them, like Sylvia, became mothers themselves and took in other kids, you know? And she she was famous. I mean, like, watch the death and life of Mar- Marsha P. Johnson. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. And it's, there's a scene where, what's her name? Victoria, I think. 
the who's kind of like the person they follow around in the documentary. Oh, yeah. Sitting, she's sitting with the family, and she's just rad by herself. Mm-hmm. Like there's a pic, there's a picture of her that she holds up where she's like topless and all these beads, and she's like, back in the day, I had a 24 inch waist, and she's you know kind of like a heavier like Native American woman now, and she it's just funny because she's like when I have the body when I have my 24 inch waist, I you know? know, and then she's, she's just cute. topless and like boobs out, and I was like, yeah, girl, and um. She's trans as well and uh, non-gender conforming, and so it, she has a real passion for learning more about Marsha's death. And so she's, like, meeting with Marsha's family, and they were like, oh, we never believed her in all these stories she would spin. Like, she was friends with Andy Warhol and blah, blah, blah. And she says, she, she was. She was friends with these people. Like, she was all that she told you she was. She and- is... Truly, if yeah, I, I know you just said it, but watch that documentary because there are so many video clips of of Marsha yeah. and like interviews with Marsha, and she she's is, fucking great. She's like such a light, like you know how you see some people and you're just like that person has it, like mm-hmm. whatever that is. It's like that charisma or like yeah. that charm or like whatever that is. Marsha had it. Like, yeah. she was radiating, glowing. Yeah. In in the beginning of the movie, they have this video clip of this, like, homeless guy being like, I know who Marsha is. And he, like, can't decide whether to call her he or she. And, like, she's just being so sweet and, like, understanding to him. And, like, he's got his arms around her and she's just kind of standing there politely with him. And um, he's just like, I've always wanted to dress in drag, <laughs> but I can't do that. He's drunk and, you know, whatever. And she's just being very sweet. She's And he He's going on and on and on about her. She goes, how do you know so much about me? And he was like, because you're Marsha. You're the queen. You're the queen. <laughs> and it's she really was. She, she was so important to people of all walks of life in New York. She was famous in her own yeah. right. You know? No, she was. Yeah, especially and, like in that, in that, not just that community, but just New York at that time, I get the sense that it was... And especially that area. Yes, that area. You know, I think she lived in the village, kind of, like, over in that Stonewall area. Yeah. But that whole kind of Andy Warhol's factory and all of that stuff, kind of that, like, underground... Yeah, exactly. Um, it was all of the others. Yeah, of, where all know? the weirdos... And listen, I think Andy Warhol is a piece of garbage. Like, he's a terrible person. But, like, that kind of community that he kind of spurred, he did kind of create this idea that it was okay to be a weirdo yeah and and uh, get together with other like weirdos like artistic yeah. weird people exactly so now that you have an idea of who Marsha was it was such a shock when she was found dead she was found dead in the Hudson River very near to Christopher Street which is where Stonewall took place mm-hmm. and police automatically said it was a suicide and they they really didn't give a lot of explanation. There was a lack of evidence. And the gay community immediately was like, something is up. Right. And there's interviews of a guy where he's saying, I saw her in the river. She had a hole in her head. There's multiple people saying that they saw her with a yeah. hole in her head. So, and, and people, you know, I feel like it happens a lot when someone commits suicide that they are like, I would have never known she was so happy. But these people were really like... Marsha wouldn't have done that because her whole life was this movement. She would not have abandoned us. Well, I mean, and I do think that there's a certain amount of of not truly knowing what someone would or wouldn't do, but I right. think the issue is when you have a police department or whoever's in charge, when you have any of that stuff in there, um, 
they're not actively investigating or they're looking yeah. like they're covering, covering stuff up or they're not doing their job, yeah. then it, you're making it very easy for us to speculate. It's funny you know, you say do your job. Yeah. Because there's a video of them where they're screaming, do, do your, your job. job. Do yeah. your fucking job. Yeah, because it's just like when you don't do that, if you don't take the necessary steps, even if you truly believe she committed suicide, yeah. if you don't investigate it the way that you would have investigated anything else, you're not because she's trans, that's truly why you're doing yeah. it. You're doing it because she's... And it's a- still happening today. Right. And that's the thing is that this woman that we're following through this documentary is part of, like, kind of an anti-violence uh, community for LGBTQ people, and she does a lot of looking into other cases of trans people as well, and they were talking about another trans woman who you know, her case was going cold. They weren't doing anything about it. Marsha's case has, at at the time of this movie coming out, it had been 25 years. It's been even longer than that. And these people still don't have any answers. And her family doesn't really even know what happened. They were just like, they wouldn't let her see the body. They wouldn't let them see the body. Trans women of color are... They are at the end of violence, the receiving end of violence, very often, and are murdered at a disproportionate number yes. uh, to to a lot of other segments of the population. Yes. And it is really disturbing and sad, and to this day, I don't think that they are um, trans people, I want to say. I want to say trans people in general, but trans women in particular, I don't think that people kind of take them seriously. It's sort of the same thing as... When sex workers or homeless people are murdered, where people kind it's of are like, off. yeah, they're kind of like, well, eh. Like, it's not like they want to be like, we don't care, but they don't care. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. They weren't a big enough part of society for them to really care about it. And I think that it's easy for us to get into that mindset of casting people aside. And I think that when you do find yourself thinking of things like that, where especially when they use certain terminology like prostitute homeless person, something like that, where it so easily categorizes them as someone that's less than. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's good for all of us when we catch ourselves thinking that maybe they are less than, even if we don't mean to, to check ourselves and to reframe our mindset. Right. I mean, and and really, like, don't judge yourself too harshly because that is... What society we have has been, yeah, us. we have been so conditioned for our first impulse when we see someone asking for money on the street or on, you know, the street corner as soon as you exit the highway. Like, your first impulse is to be like, Ugh, or like to look away. That's not you. Yeah. That's the, that's society that has conditioned you to think that way. And if you stop for one second, you will say, like, I'm a compassionate human being, and I understand that, like, I need to show compassion to these people. Right. Like, and I'm not saying you need to give money to every homeless person or anything like no, that. No, like... And I, I mean, I personally, there's, uh, there's a lot of very young homeless people in my neighborhood. Yeah, there are. And there was a boy who would sit outside of CVS a lot, and then a boy who would sit outside of Porto's Bakery, and I would always get him food. Like, I would get him a bagel right. and a bottle of water. Like, like I don't want to give money, necessarily, right. but if I can give them food and some sort of like, sustenance in any ways, that makes me feel I've better. given money before, if that's all I have. Yeah, yeah. But I have been saying forever, and I think this is something that maybe you and I should do if you want to do it with me, because I've been saying forever to Anthony that it's something that I want to do. Homeless shelter, Skid Row? I, well, I actually have a friend who works with um, the homeless, but I was actually saying that I want to go to the store and buy a bunch of stuff and make bags. I want to make 
to uh, keep in my car. I want to make... Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, because then you can hand a bag yeah. that has... Like, to women, you can hand them a bag that has a tampon. Well, that's what I was going like, to say is that an years, energy ago, bar. years ago, I wanted to do, like, a women's... Like, a homeless woman's box. Yeah. To do, like, pads, tampons, and, yeah. like, find people to donate and things like that. Yeah. We'll talk about that off the We'll air. talk about so it later. And, um, oh, but how sweaty are you right now? I am now? so sweaty, oh, guys. Man. Listen, it was almost 100 degrees in L.A. today, and I turned the AC on in my apartment as soon as I got home, but my closet takes forever to cool down. We are slowly, like, hiking our clothes up and off. Yeah, I've, I've got mine tied up under my boobs. Madigan's in her bra. I'm always in my bra. Like, <laughs> I have actual sweat beads on my forehead. Yeah, um, for real. I keep having to take my glasses off and, like, wipe my nose. <laughs> but then I'm like, I can't see. Um, okay, so let's, let's close off with the Marsha P. Johnson just saying to learn more about her because her life and her death is so important and cannot be forgotten. And people like her cannot be forgotten either. And I just really want to drive that home that she left us too soon and she did so much good. She could have done even more good. Yeah. And um, I think maybe someday in the future we'll do an episode on her kind of to cover her more because I know we both intended to cover her more this Pride Month, but kind of, I got wrapped up in Stonewall research, and, yeah. you know, we kind well, of... Well, it's a lot to cover, so I'm yeah. glad that we touched on her. You guys, we're not planning on ending this podcast anytime soon. Yeah, so well, there's time. There's, there's time. So much, we have nothing but time. Okay, now, for Madigan Geeking Out Corner. I wrote this down in my notes for you, because Thank I was you. like, I was like, Madigan is gonna want to know this. I put it as a fun fact for you, but... I have known this for a while. There's a lot of podcast episodes around this. There's a lot of websites you can look at on this. It's amazing. So, for those of you who don't know, Judy Garland is my everything. She's not just she my is. idol. She's not just someone that I look up to. She is my everything. You should get a Judy Garland portrait. Like. I want... No, there's actually uh, her Carnegie Hall album. There's a, a really cool kind of shadowy portrait of her that I really want to get tattooed. Yeah. And uh, seriously, my dog's name is Dorothy. I know everything that you could ever want to know about the Wizard of Oz. Still learning more. She... I can't. Okay. So, it took me a while. I knew that she was a gay icon through most of my life, but it took me a while to hear that she may have been somehow involved in Stonewall. <laughs> I was like in adulthood when it's I heard an about this. Interesting theory. And I was like, um, what? So, first of all, her birthday was on June 10th, so happy birthday, Judy. She died on June 27th. Stonewall began the morning of June 28th. Her funeral was also that day. So I want to talk a little bit about, and like, I'm sure I'm going to do a whole Judy Garland episode one day, but because we're talking about LGBTQ stuff this week, I'm going to get into why she's a gay icon. All right, do it. The magazine The Advocate calls Judy Garland the Elvis of homosexuals. So her father was a closeted homosexual. And was known to seduce and flirt with, like, the boys working in his theater in Minnesota. We're both from Minnesota. It's so you're there. like, yeah. And we're like, basically sisters. We're basically sisters. I've been to her house in Minnesota and everything. It's I'll tell you guys about that another time. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> so, she also married a few closeted homosexual men, including, most famously, Vincent Minnelli. Liza was that Minnelli. intentional? No. She didn't Judy, know. Judy was a person, and I again, I will get into this more another time, where she deeply, deeply needed love, and I think there was something about her life that gay people connected with, and so 
I think there was something about because they couldn't be openly out either. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? I think there was something about her that they were drawn to, and there was something about them that she was drawn to, and she just needed to be loved and put on a pedestal because she her father died at a very when she was very young, mm-hmm. and he was the only one that was in her corner. She lived a very tragic life. And so whenever somebody saw her for who she was, she married them, basically. She's been married. I think she was married six or seven times. And um, too many times. too many times, girl. (laughs) And um, I've read great biographies where she, like, walked in on Vincent with men and she cheated on him. Yeah, I only ask that because I do know that there were some Hollywood relationships that I've read about in that golden age of Hollywood where they intentionally, in order to protect their husband or their friend, really, from the stigma of being gay, they did it on purpose. Not from what I've read, but that wouldn't surprise me, to be honest. And I think that a lot of the books that I've read came out years and years ago, Mm -hmm. so maybe they were a bit prejudiced in the way that they wanted to disclose that part of her life. So that could very well be a part of it. Uh, From the beginning of her Hollywood career, Garland like to visit gay bars with openly gay friends like Roger Edens, look him up, girl, my god, <laughs> uh, Charles Walters and George Cukor, uh, to sh- I, I hate this word chagrin, Sh- the chagrin to yeah. chagrin of her handlers at MGM. So they were like, you know, they you should not be associating with these people. Essentially, I mean, they didn't want her to associate with like anybody except for like mickey rooney sometimes so she was like fuck you and she would go out with like like they were basically her bosses they were choreographers musicians people who were like working business people at mgm and she would go out with them and be like look i'm not this little girl you know um the aspects of gay identification with garland were being discussed in the mainstream as early as 1967 where time magazine in reviewing garland's 1967 palace theater engagement noted that a disproportionate part of her nightly clique seems to be homosexual they also said that the boys in tight trousers which was a phrase for gay men uh-huh. uh would roll their eyes tear at their hair and practically levitate from their seats during garland's it's like beatlemania yeah, for real. They were, like, all about her. And I think, and again, it was because she, everyone knew that she was tragic. She lived a very hard life. And even the roles that she took were very, almost biographical in a way. And people felt very connected to her in that way. Um, a psychiatrist hypothesized that the attraction to Garland might be made considerably stronger by the fact that she has survived so many problems. Homosexuals identify with that kind of hysteria, they said. and That, that Judy, seems problematic. It does seem, Okay, but this is also a really long time ago, but just listen. So, Judy was beaten up in life, embattled, and ultimately had to become more masculine. She has the power that homosexuals would like to have, and they attempt to attain it by idolizing her. I think that's problematic as fuck. I'm not saying that's true. Yeah, I really do, too. <laughs> but the point that I'm making in saying that is that her connection to the gay community started before Stonewall. Like, this was... No, I mean, of course. I don't think we've kind of addressed... The reason why we're talking about Judy Garland right now is because people have hypothesized that because she died days before the riots, that... She died the day day before. yeah, Yeah, that it that the gay community was so despondent and yes. upset about her passing that it kind of spurred the riots. <laughs> exactly. So, I'm leading into that right now. One quick thing that I want to say before I mention Stonewall, though, is that there was a code phrase that gay people would use in order to identify each other, where they would say, are you a friend of Dorothy's? Because 
the Wizard of Oz, the rainbow. It was right, the whole, right, it was right. The whole thing. Yes. And some people even wonder if the rainbow flag has something to do with over the yeah, rainbow. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's all. And I'm not saying any of this is fact. I'm a huge Judy Garland fan, but that doesn't make me be like, yeah, this is totally all 100 percent true. I just think this is a really fun theory. So Judy's death and funeral were held on June 27th, 1969. The Sono riots began the morning on June 28th, 1969. Some of and at 1 a.m. in the morning as yeah, well. So it's, so it's it was essentially the night of the 27th. Exactly. So some observers of the riots contend that most of those involved were not the type to moon over Judy Garland records or attend her concerts at Carnegie Hall. They were more preoccupied with what they were, where they were going to sleep and where their next meal would come from, which I think is very true. However, Sylvia Rivera has stated that there were patrons at the bar who had come straight from the very emotional Garland funeral. She said that, indeed, there was a feeling in the air something would happen that night. I guess Judy Garland's death just really helped us hit the fan. And that's kind of what made me believe, not believe in this, but it's like these people may have also been feeling certain emotions because there are gay icons, celebrities, that when they pass, you do, you love them like they're... Right, of course. I mean, you know, so I think that there could have been a group of people where emotions are running high. Do I think Judy Garland is the reason that Stonewall happened? Absolutely fucking not. Well, I think it's kind (laughs) of what we've already said, where it was kind of a perfect storm of of a situation. I have a tendency to not believe that Judy Garland was the catalyst for for Stonewall. I don't think so either. But I would say, and I do agree with, with that quote that you just said, where... Because Stonewall was a shit bar, you know what I mean? Like, it was like, they said that they served beer in, like, buckets and stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, it was gross. Like, some people in Stonewall Uprising, there were some people who were like, I wouldn't drink at the Stonewall because it was so gross, but I... Right, but you would still go to to, be a part of it. You know, commiserate. So that's why I feel like there's little bits of I'm sure there were people there who... I'm sure there were people there who were on edge from that because, I mean, I remember when David Bowie died, that felt like a loss to me, you know what I mean? where it was kind of like so stupid in a way because like it's not a loss to you you don't know this person but like you you feel it you feel it because celebrity deaths where it's definitely taken a toll on me right and so I'm sure that there were people at the Stonewall that night who were emotional because of that you know I'm sure that there were and I think that that's I think that it's oversimplifying to say that she was the cause of it but I think it's it definitely the played a part. The coincidence of it too is uncanny. Yeah, and I think it definitely, I think it definitely played a part yeah. for certain people who right. were there that and night. And that's why I wanted to touch briefly on why she's a gay icon. Again, I could go on on Judy Garland herself for forever. There's something interesting that I read where they were talking about her famous song "Somewhere Over the Rainbow," where some have described as the sound of the closet. What? You know how they say you're coming out of the closet? Yeah. They say because. For me, okay, so that song for me is so much about yearning to finally be at peace with yourself or yearning to finally be in a place where you can be at peace with yourself. So when they say it's the sound of the closet, it's like, it's that, it's, I just picture someone sitting physically in a closet like we are right now and just being like, God, I wish I could break out and be myself because that's what the song is about. She's yearning to finally be accepted for who she is. You know, and then she realizes when she gets to Oz that she was like, no, what, you know, what I had within me all along was what was important. So I think that that is something that has connected with a lot of people as well. And I just thought that was very poetic, the sound of the closet. Yeah. So. That's nice. There's a little little Judy Garland corner for you guys. (laughs) More where that came from. All right. 
Um, Do you have anything else? Um, I feel very fortunate to be able to talk about Stonewall. Me too. I think that I think we did a pretty good job. I think we covered all of the of all of the bases. I'm sure there's. Oh, I'm sure there's way so more. much more. I mean, I I'm not sure like. I know that there's like a million the more details, things you know? to can cover. You, can you believe how many people in the LGBTQ plus community listen to our podcast? No, it's amazing. And we have gotten some awesome coming out stories. Guys, please, they're amazing. Please keep sending them because I would like nothing more than to spend an entire hour just reading your I coming out gonna, stories. I think we're going to, I think we're getting there. Yeah. So, we, so please do that. You know, if we have to break it up and do a two parter, I'm also I'm okay, totally okay cool with that. that. So I want all of your coming out stories. We want the good. We want the bad. We want the stuff that was awesome and joyful and the stuff that was hard and messy and messy and difficult because all of that is real life and it's all stuff that people need to hear they need to understand that this is something that real people go through and that it's hard yeah sometimes you know and the whole thing behind coming out that you know they touch on if you've seen i uh love simon which is a movie that i love where they have like this bit where like they're coming out as heterosexual you know the whole idea of coming out i hope one day doesn't have to be a thing you know you see your child as a blank slate you don't see them as having certain sexual tendencies you know what i mean like it just wait for them to discover themselves and not have to feel like they have this coming out situation but until that day comes you know your stories are going to be helping other people who are listening they're definitely affecting our lives i've loved all the stories you've gotten so far me too me too i get so excited when i see that we have an email yeah and guys if we haven't written you back yet we will it has been a really crazy couple of weeks for me, I know. So I have been really slacking on responding to emails and stuff like that. And we will let you know if we are going to be sharing your story. We'll send you an email and be like, hey, next episode, we shared your story and things like that. Yeah. So I really appreciated one of our listeners saying, hey, by the way, I kind of want to be anonymous. Anonymous? Anonymous. Anonymous. Fuck. (laughs) Anonymous. Anonymous. It's okay. It's okay. I can say it, but now I'm like anonymous. God, fuck. It's hot in here. I'm Um, dying. And I think that was great. You know, if you have certain like specifications that you want us to know, that's cool. We want to have this be a time for the spotlight to be shown on all of you and not about us. So I'm really looking forward to doing that episode. Even if you, you know, we are, we have a handful, but we could use. We so have much enough more. to do an to do an episode, but, but we want more. We do, yes, more, 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 more. more. Okay, more. Um, All right, uh, Keegan. Anything else? I think that's it. If we, if you want to write us, if we yeah. miss something, if you have a fun fact that we didn't get to in this episode, please email us. Our email is neighborhoodfeminist at gmail dot com. Guys. Can, Find us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. Spy on our. I've noticed that I did get a couple of followers on Twitter. I'm sorry. I've gotten Facebook because I never too. follow. I never post. I posted on Twitter today, and you know, want to know what I posted on Twitter today? I what? posted, I don't understand Twitter. Am I doing something wrong? Is it me? I think it's me. That's what I posted <laughs> on Twitter today because I'm like, I don't get it. But um, if you want to spy on our personal lives, you can watch me fumble through Twitter at um, Keegan underscore Win. You can follow me on Instagram at Keegan.Winfield. I don't have a Twitter, but my Instagram is She's Mad Again. And I have to say, if you follow me on Facebook, will you please send me a message and tell me that you're a listener? Because I want to friend you on Facebook, but I don't friend people that I don't think I know. 
Or just follow the Facebook group. Yeah, but I mean, if you yeah. want, if you want to like friend me on Facebook, if you found me or whatever, like there, I think there are some people that have found me that are listeners. Just like shoot me a message. You'd be like, hey, I'm so and so, and I friend people all me. the time. As long as you don't look like a creep, then I, I'm, I find I'm you. I'm very, I'm very particular. So just shoot me a message, and I'm totally cool with adding you to be able to see my profile. But whatever. Is there anything else? I think that's oh, it. Oh, nope. You can find us pretty much anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you're listening to us right now, you already know that, so I'm sorry, but we're on Spotify. Please listen to us on Radio Public, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Apple Stitcher. Podcasts, Stitcher. I love Stitcher. <laughs> Stitcher's my thing of Stitcher's choice. Stitcher's not my jam, but everyone has their their preference. Chris gets really mad at me. You don't listen on Radio Public? I'm like, no! I listen on both yeah. just to make us money, but yeah, exactly. uh, otherwise I wouldn't. I, yeah. I would just listen on iTunes but or Apple yeah. Podcasts. Right. So, that's all the stuff. Oh, leave us, please leave us reviews on iTunes and rate us, review us, tell your friends about us, uh, tell your enemies about us, tell people about us. But only if your enemies are nice. <laughs> I don't want negative reviews. <laughs> yeah, please don't tell your, like, Trump-loving cousin to listen to us. We don't want that shit, guys. We don't want it. So, okay, we love you, and with that being said, we encourage you to, to rage, rage on. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.